Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Julia Reed Nichols, the creative director of The Event People, an events company in Las Vegas. We talk about the events industry, how the pandemic affected it, the return of in-person events in Nevada, and more. Afterward, Joey talks with me, reporter Humberto Sanchez, and assistant editor Jackie Valley about poll results. We conducted a poll of Nevadans with polling firm OH Predictive Insights to learn who's ahead in the governor and Senate races, as well as Nevadans' opinions on education, housing, and the war in Ukraine. At the end of the show, I'm joined by David Figler, the host of CityCast Las Vegas, to chat about their new show and to play some clips from an interview they did with our own environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg, for Earth Day. The events industry in Las Vegas was a big reason people came to the city every year. Conventions and business meetings of all shapes and sizes brought thousands of visitors to the city, often on weekdays, and helped fill hotel rooms. But the industry came to a grinding halt at the beginning of the pandemic. And even as the city emerged from the initial COVID-related shutdown period, capacity and travel restrictions made it much harder to get large groups of people together. In recent months, though, as COVID numbers drop and medical experts say we're entering an endemic stage, events are picking back up in a big way. The mask mandate has been lifted, capacity limits have been restored, and many events are no longer requiring COVID tests or proof of vaccination to attend. It's an interesting time for the Las Vegas events industry, as they had to adapt to survive early on and are now able to return to that quote-unquote new normal. I spoke with Julia Reed Nichols, the creative director of The Event People, an event company in the Arts District of Las Vegas, to get a glimpse into what she has seen over the past few years and the new challenges the industry faces as the labor market shifts and inflation causes challenges. In Vegas, we always have a ton of corporate events, but being based in the Arts District, we also do a lot of independent artist events, a lot of kind of boots on the ground, local fun projects that might not have a lot of funding, but are certainly a lot of fun to put together. And we've heard that the events industry has been picking up a lot in Las Vegas. How have you seen it change in the last couple months? You know, in January, we had to cancel a festival with one week notice because of the surge of the variant that was going around at that time. And you fast forward to now and pretty much every event we're doing is selling out. We are right in the first Friday footprint here in Las Vegas. And that event is just shoulder to shoulder. So there's definitely evidence that people are willing to go out and experience these live events again. When, when you're putting on an event, what's like the average mm-hmm. size? Like? They're definitely smaller than they used to be. I would say that our convention parties that would easily be a thousand people before are closer to two or 300 people right now. I don't think that's as much an indication of how many people want to go to events. I think it's we're still dealing with a lot of logistics that's making it hard to get quite as many people to Las Vegas, you know, as before. What are some of those logistics? What went into an event before compared to now? There's still a lot of complications from COVID. Travel is a huge one. Our Mm -hmm. city relies on air travel and that is greatly affected. And companies are less willing to invest in air travel if they feel like it might end up getting messed up and the person might not getting to the event anyways. Plus, people are living a much more hybrid lifestyle in a a world where 100% of the office might have gone to a convention before. Maybe 50% of the office is going now because people work from home now. 
There definitely are still huge events, but clients, they're looking for, um, they're not limiting it. You're just noticing that there's less people at some things. But there's also a whole lot of other cool things that people are doing, like engaging audiences virtually, having fun ways to go around and interact with the different convention booths. So it did open up our industry where there might be less physical bodies at the event. You know, it's possible the overall numbers when you look at them might be very similar if you include the virtual guests. Are you putting on virtual events pretty regularly too? There's pretty much always a virtual element with almost every event now. Everybody wants the people who don't feel comfortable coming into the city or traveling to the city to still get the benefit of what they're investing in. I will say that a lot of venues have a have put in a lot of work into their technological infrastructure and have made it much easier for us over the past two years. The events industry was arguably one of the most affected by the sudden closure in March of 2020. Julia said her company lost more than $100,000 in a 12-hour period when the events started canceling. When the city shut down, it shut down hard. So I asked Julia to describe what it's been like since. Did you see that bounce back happen kind of all at once, or has it been a slow climb back from March of 2020 to where we are now? It's been a roller coaster. There's been a lot of ups and downs. There's been a lot of changes in demographics with the different types of people visiting the city, um, the different type of events people want to do. Last February, we were focusing on producing like drive-up events because we were like, well, nobody really wants to interact with anybody. So we'll do drive-up events. And I think it's impressive that in a year, we're already back to like full-fledged let's all go out and, and do events like we were doing before the pandemic. It's, it's pretty impressive we've come this far. Did you see big like drop-offs like you did at the beginning of 2020 when like the Omicron spike and the Delta spike happened in December and then what last summer, I think? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. And we still have clients that have international events. I, I have an event that was canceled. Um, it was supposed to be in March of 2020 and they still haven't rescheduled because I think 60% of their guests are supposed to be international and they just don't even know how to like, when is this going to be okay to do? So it's still affecting things for sure. And, and yeah, the variants definitely would cause last minute disruptions. People want to be able to come. Workers, just getting people to the event to work there in January was completely impossible. Julia said the pandemic forced her to do some layoffs to keep the company afloat, but she has been able to hire some people back and said pandemic aid from the government really helped. Now, like other businesses, she's facing a new challenge, navigating a tough labor market. You talked about not being able to find people to work events. That's a, That's been a huge deal, right? I mean, I feel like I walk down the street and every company I see has, we're hiring signs. Have you guys struggled to find workers? Yeah, absolutely. It's still a struggle to be able to find people. I think that's a mix of things. The pandemic changed our culture in a way where it's almost like a 40 hour work week feels like a lot when you haven't worked in two years. So I understand that people that are like, this is a lot. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is. It was a lot before. I also just think that with inflation happening the way it is, it's really hard for business owners to even figure out what we can pay, what we should pay, what is a reasonable rate to pay people what we can actually continually afford because pricing is changing very quickly on a lot of things right now. And I think that's making it a lot harder for everybody. 
when you do an event, you don't have like a set, a set staff that you always use. You, you probably do you use like freelancers or, or, or you kind of like bring staff in when you need them or how does that work? Yeah, we have some people that we use really, really reliably. And then we'll bring in extra hands that are usually referrals from the people that we trust. Hey, do you have anybody that you work with that you really like? That sort of thing. Um, and then occasionally you just have to like go on Facebook and just start blasting it out and begging people to come work and be like, it's 25 an hour, please come, you know? <laughs> and I'm sure that price is changing constantly because inflation's changing and the economy's changing and people, like you said, the 40 hour work week feels so much different now. Do you feel like you have a grasp on like where this is going or do you, are you still just like holding on and trying to figure out like what the right economic makeup of your business should be right now? It's been an interesting exercise and flexibility over the last two years. And I think the people that have done well are the smaller companies that can move a little quicker, like mine. If you're a big ship, it's really hard to navigate all these monthly ups and downs. But I definitely don't have it figured out. We're doing a 37-state tour for one of our shows. And I'm very curious to see how it is in the rest of the country right now as well outside of our little Vegas bubble. Well, that kind of leads into like, where do you see the events business going from here? I hope we're going to keep growing. We seem to be keep growing. Every time I look at this city, there's a new venue, a new place to go, more entertainment, more shows. I think the evidence is that we're growing. And I think that people are just, we are going to see a slight shift in the way people attend events. There might be some more concerns about maybe distancing. Maybe we won't see quite as many shoulder to shoulder older things for corporate events because people are going to want to be really respectful of that. But overall, I think we're going to come back strong. If you'd like to read more about Nevada's recovery from the pandemic, we have a recovery dashboard on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Hi, I'm Katie Foley, the Associate Director of Development here at the Indy. Thanks for listening to Indy Matters. Our programming would not be possible without the support of listeners like you. If you appreciate nonpartisan, unbiased news and information about stories that affect the lives of Nevadans, please consider donating today. When you do, your gift of any amount will be doubled thanks to our friends at the Ingolstead Foundation. Double your support now at thenevadaindependent.com. Okay, Jacob. Well, uh, the pandemic certainly had a, a big effect on events. It had a big effect on a bunch of stuff. But the pandemic era decisions that were made by uh, state legislators are expected to play a larger role in the upcoming election. Uh, we have more from that uh, in our next segment about polls. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. So we worked with the polling firm OH Predictive Insights, and they're a firm that we've worked with in the past. We polled 748 registered Nevada voters between April 1st and April 9th, and we got a whole bunch of results back. Yes, lots of data, lots of stories. You can find them all on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. But for this podcast segment, I will be talking with you and our reporter, Humberto Sanchez, and assistant editor, Jackie Valley, to talk about some of those numbers. Um, So let's, let's hear from that chat now. 
All righty. Well, I am here with a multitude of people from the Nevada Independent. I am here with Humberto Sanchez, our man in D.C., Jacob Solis, my wonderful co-host and higher education reporter, and Jackie Valley, our assistant editor. And we are talking today about our polls that we did with OH Predictive Insight. And they did all the polling and all of the data. And we've got some results here. I'm talking about different races, but also about different topic areas. So we're going to start with the Senate race. Catherine Cortez Masto is the incumbent. Her likely opponent could be Adam Laxalt or Sam Brown. And so, Humberto, you've been following this pretty closely. What do the numbers look like out of the poll? It shows that the, the race is still far away in voters' minds, but it doesn't bode well for Catherine Cortez Masto. She leads her likely opponent, Adam Laxalt, 43 to 35. And in a head-to-head with Sam Brown, as you mentioned, she leads him 42 to 34. But the problem that she's facing really is that she's below 50%. She's the incumbent, and, and that's a big siren there for her. And also the, the fact that uh, President Biden is so unpopular in Nevada, and that's kind of a hurdle for her to get over. And, and that was something that we were talking about before we started recording was these numbers numbers, they look a little bit different than other polls that you might be seeing. Can you explain why that is? So the, there was a recent poll uh, done by the Reno Gazette Journal. It had some different numbers. The differences in the methodology, the independent poll that we did, basically it surveyed registered voters and the Gazette Journal poll surveyed likely voters. And that, that tends to skew the results in different ways. And that's that's pretty much why. And also the fact that the, the race is so far away in people's minds a lot of people haven't decided or aren't thinking about it. It's just a whole half year away, basically. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely a ways out still. So this is all early numbers, just looking at kind of the landscape, right? That's right. So, Jacob, we're going to jump over to the governor's race now. What is it looking like for the incumbent Steve Sisolak and his many Republican opponents at this point? Yeah, so Steve Sisolak is in a similar-ish position to Catherine Cortez Masto, but slightly better. So he's looking at around 44 to 46% in any hypothetical head-to-head against any Republican opponent. And then those Republicans, Joe Lombardo, the sheriff in Clark County, former Senator Dean Heller, former North Las Vegas Mayor John Lee, they're all hovering in the 33 to 35% range. And so that's pretty consistent with what we saw in the Senate race. Again, though, with that slight tweak that Sisolak is doing a little better than Catherine Cortez Masto. Theoretically. But like Humberto said, this is a snapshot in time, and this should be read as a snapshot of where the state is in early April. This will change. And during this poll, the thing that we really wanted to focus on today was the, the topic questions that we asked. We asked about the Ukraine war, we asked about education, and we asked about housing. And we've got stories on all of this on our website, um, so go check them out. But I, w- I want to ask you, Humberto, because you did the Ukraine one. What are we looking at? Are people's reactions to the to the war? I-, I know the first one that we asked was Biden's handling of Russia and the Ukraine war. What were the results we heard? They reflect his unpopularity nationally. So the poll shows that 53% of voters surveyed uh, disapprove of Biden's handling of Russia with respect to the attack in, in Ukraine. And uh, 53% of voters also believe that Biden hasn't taken harsh enough actions in response to Russia's aggression. But it's also interesting how the poll shows that Nevada is galvanized against Russia, that 71% of Nevadans said that Russia is a threat to the United States. How many people want us to send American troops over to the Ukraine to, to fight Russia? It's a pretty bold move, right? It's very bold. They're, they're a nuclear power and who knows what that would bode. So a surprising number, 30% agree that we should send troops, but 43% said we should not. So there are obviously more who don't want that. But I thought I thought the 30% was an eye-opening number. 
So moving over to education now, Jacob, you you helped with this story. What was a big standout for you in, in the education? Yeah, so we asked two questions on education, one on K-12 and one on higher ed. And we'll start with K-12, where we were really trying to laser in on what people think is the solution to sort of improving Nevada's public education. And the number one thing people said was paying teachers better. About 36% of respondents said better teacher pay is the number one thing we can do, which is interesting because it's, it's not, not an issue, right? Teachers do say that there are problems with salary compression, that teachers from out of state are being paid at competitive rates. And if you've been there forever, you're not getting compensated fairly because of that. So there are issues with teacher pay in Nevada, but it's not usually when we're talking from like the wonkier side of things, the like number one thing that comes up. Other options on there were holding back students who can't read or write at their current grade level. That was 25% of respondents said that. And smaller class sizes was only the third option. 18% said that that was the number one thing we could do. Yeah, actually. So Jackie, you used to report on education. Were you surprised to see this result? Yeah, I was initially surprised uh, when I thought about it more. Maybe I was less surprised because the average person probably is thinking teacher pay more so than how many student bodies in a classroom. That's more of a policy thing. I just don't think people are maybe thinking in, in that vein. All these meetings that Jacob and I attend over the years, really the number one thing is small class sizes. A, a lot of efforts to increase school funding are centered around that idea. Yeah. Jacob, there was also, like you mentioned, a question asked about higher education. That's right. And it was a simple one. It was, do you approve of the job the Board of Regents are doing? The Board of Regents is a 13-member governing body for higher ed in Nevada. They control a system of eight colleges and universities. And a plurality, 30%, said they were doing a fair job. But that comes with a massive caveat that a lot of people don't know what the Board of Regents is or what they do. And so I was talking with Mike Noble, who works as the chief of research at OH Predictive Insights, who helped us with this poll. They ran the poll. And something he pointed to is that with bodies like a board of regents or even a city council or even a state legislature, people are simply not plugged in to have an opinion. And when you don't have an opinion, you just say they're doing fine. The other interesting thing here is the people who do have an opinion, right? Like the people who say that they're doing good or excellent or doing poor or terrible, they're plugged in enough to either know what the board of regents are, or more interestingly, they have an opinion on how higher education ought to be perceived. So ideologically speaking, more conservatives, almost 50% of conservatives said that the regents were doing a poor or terrible job versus uh, 29% of self-identified liberals, whereas only 29% of liberals said they were doing a poor or terrible job. The question, yes, it's about the Board of Regents, but it's also about higher education. People's information is limited. Most people are never going to interact with the Board of Regents, let alone go to college in Nevada. Only 100,000 students are at those eight institutions. Add another 20,000 more employees, and its reach is big but limited. Yeah. And then moving on to our our last topic here, which is housing. Jackie, you're talking about the poll results for that. Uh, We asked two questions about housing, rent control, expanding shelters. What were the results there? Yeah, so this one is really interesting, I think, because it is the hot topic right now that seems to be coming up in any conversation with family or friends, which indicates that it could sway voters. We found it was a unifying force in some ways across the political spectrum. 65% of Nevada residents support the state enacting some sort of rent control policy or limiting the amount that a landlord can demand when leasing a home or renewing a lease. So if you break that down by party affiliation, it was liberal identified respondents. 81% of them said yes to this. 
65% of moderates were in favor of it, and then 53% of conservatives indicated support as well. So there was some variation there, but broadly, everyone was supportive of it. And then interestingly, if you look at it from an age perspective, it was overwhelming support among younger generations. Not a surprise there. I think we're seeing millennials either starting out on the younger end, trying to get apartments and facing those challenges or the first time home buyer situation. Homes in Reno have already crossed that half a million dollar mark and Vegas is fastly approaching that threshold as well. We're sitting about 460,000 right now is the median home price. So that was interesting. It was 71% of people in the 18 to 54 age bracket overwhelmingly supported rent control. And then people old, older than 55, it was only at 57%. Yeah. And the other question that we asked was about expanding shelters, right? Yes. And that also was a pretty unified response. 69% of respondents said they would support the addition of more shelter beds and space in regard to our unsheltered populations. Well, Humberto, Jacob, and Jackie, thank you for joining me. Thank you for breaking down these numbers. Thank you for bringing your your insight. We'll we'll have more polls, I'm sure, as we get closer to the election. Just keep in mind, again, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's very early on. These are very early numbers. So definitely everything's subject to change still. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Joey. There's a new podcast in Las Vegas talking about the city. It's CityCast Las Vegas. And they joined us this week to chat about a story that they aired with one of our reporters on Earth Day. Uh, first, you're going to hear a conversation between CityCast host David Figler and Joey, after which we're going to jump right into that Earth Day interview between CityCast's lead producer, Sonia Swanson, and our very own Daniel Rothberg. All right. Well, I am here with David Figler, the host of CityCast Las Vegas, a new podcast in Las Vegas. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) David, thanks for joining me. Hey, Joey. Great to be here. Yeah. And so we are we're working together now a little bit. We're going to be sharing some content. You'll be hearing more from you guys on our end. And hopefully listeners will be hearing more of our stuff, more indie matters on on your end, on your podcast. Isn't that right? It's a beautiful marriage made (laughs) In heaven and hell, which is how we describe Las Vegas. <laughs> That's right. And it's how you describe journalism, too. <laughs> well, there you go. And not, not my first collab with the Nevada Independent, but this is a brand new project, and I'm really excited to be a part of it from the ground up. Yeah, yeah. You write columns for us from time to time, opinion pieces. So to start off, just tell me a little bit about CityCast. Sure. So it recently launched at the end of March of 2022, and it is a wondrous new project There are a bunch of CityCast launching in different communities around the country. They picked Las Vegas because we are a special place. And the intention was to find locals to be able to impart the local voice, touch on local issues, and appeal to locals and locals at heart. So both locals and tourists should get something from the podcast. And it is a broad range of topics. So our local team gets in there and and we try to come up with topical issues, things that are of interest interest to folks who live here. So it could be everything from uh, our first episode, which was about affordable housing. We talked about the legacy of Mojave Max. We've talked about the BTS invasion as it was uh, coming to our town and our town was turning purple. And we had the pleasure of having one of the Nevada Independent reporters, Daniel Rothberg, come on and talk to us about uh, some water issues. So it really is a, a wide spectrum of conversations. They're short. Right now, we're in that sweet spot for a podcast for your commute. So 
between about 15 minutes and 22 minutes. And right now we're also twice a week, but we are looking to expand soon to every day. So we're going to be Monday through Friday. So people will get into the regular habit of listening to us, uh, hopefully on their way to work or anytime that they want, because they're available on every single platform. As I remind (laughs) listeners at the end of the podcast that you could hear it anywhere. And then we also have this wonderful newsletter that is associated with it that comes out daily as well. Ultimately, though, our goal is to help people stay connected to the cities that they love. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I live in Reno. I don't live in Las Vegas, but I listen to the podcast and I do find it super informative, even though I'm not in the city that it's about. I think that it still hits on a lot of issues that are relevant to the state as well, which I really enjoy. So what's one thing for you that you really love about the city cast? This is more of a behind the scenes thing, but I think it comes through in the podcast is when we have our conferences, basically, internally, to like, what what should we be talking about? The conversations are so lively and so broad and so interesting that it always translates to the podcast themselves. So that's that's really the exciting part about doing a, a podcast like this. It's on all the different formats. Uh, you could go right to our website at lasvegas.citycast.fm. There's also a Twitter presence under CityCast Vegas. There's Instagram. CityCast Vegas is the handle. CityCast Vegas is all one word, and you'll be able to tap into what we're trying to accomplish with the podcast. And so from here, we're going to jump into a a little bit from one of your episodes that you did with one of our reporters, Daniel Rothberg. Your lead producer, Sonia, interviewed him uh, on Earth Day about the environmental issues in Las Vegas. And so we have a a small bit from that that we're going to play now, but you can hear the whole thing on CityCast Las Vegas. So thanks for joining me, David. My pleasure. Look forward to more. great to have you on because you're based in Reno, but you cover the whole state. And I know you've been thinking a lot about what's going on in the Colorado River Basin. I read your recent article in the Indy, and it just had this fantastic lead. I loved it. So I'll just quote you here. It comes down to a math problem gone wrong. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So like a lot of watersheds across the West and rivers, and even aquifers. The basic issue that's playing out in a lot of places is that there's less water to go around than there are rights to water or demand for water. And that's exactly fundamentally at a high level what's going on on the Colorado River, where you have legal allocations among seven U.S. states and Mexico and more than two dozen Native American tribes for about 18 million acre feet of water, which is a large amount of water. An acre foot is about, is the amount of water that can fill one acre of land to about, to, to a depth of one foot. So if you imagine multiplying that by 18 million, it's a ton of water. But in the last 20 years during the drought, in many years, we've only seen the flow of the Colorado River be at about 11 million acre feet. And that drought, that prolonged period of drought caused in part and perhaps in large part by climate change is driving this imbalance on the river. So you have a continued amount of demand and you have a small supply that is expected to continue at that level because of the way that the climate is changing and precipitation and runoff into the river are changing. So the majority of Colorado River water goes to agriculture, but 
Las Vegas, maybe part of the reason why our numbers are so low in terms of per capita consumption is because mm -hmm. we don't really have, you know, as you pointed out before, we don't really have farms. Totally. And we depend totally. on the agriculture totally. from California and Arizona. So I don't know if our, if our, our numbers are, re are, really, are really a fair reflection of how much water we actually use when you think about the lettuce and carrots and tomatoes that come in that were fed by the Colorado River in other states. Absolutely. And it's a great connection to make because people don't always make that connection. It's very, when we talk about the Colorado River, it, things are very siloed off oftentimes, but, but you're absolutely right. And we are able to live within our allocation and use such a small amount of water in part because most of that water is for municipal use. In California and Arizona, which have much larger entitlements to Colorado River water than than Nevada does, there's a wide variety of water users, municipal, agricultural. And agriculture does require more more water in many cases than a housing development. But as you said, the importance of it can't be understated that that agriculture is being used to feed people and we interact with it in our daily lives, whether we're consciously thinking about where that water is coming from or not. And you're right that, you know, it's easy to look at a per capita daily use in a city, but not think about the agriculture that we're consuming and the amount of water that goes in, into producing that. And that is also, you know, playing out in different parts of the Colorado River. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Julia Reed Nichols, Humberto Sanchez, Jackie Valley, David Figler, Sonia Swanson, and Daniel Rothberg for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, methods on coping with the fact that it's not quite summer yet, even though I'm forcing myself to wear shorts in the cold spring breeze, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. In our next segment about poles, isn't that right? What was that? Oh, is that no, a car? Yeah, that was a car horn. I think wow. someone is trying to summon someone from inside their house, outside of their house, using a car horn. It's, it's so loud. Heinous.